I don't get here enough, and I apologize for that. Um, love this community, um, and and love Jonathan and, and what he's doing, and glad you get an upgrade today. I mean, um, glad. <laughs> Uh, no, it's it is it's awesome to be here. I'm I was very excited when Jonathan asked me to come, um, to uh, to help lead in worship because uh, it's always wonderful to be with you. So uh, our scripture lesson from today comes from James chapter two verses one through ten and fourteen through seventeen. Let us hear the word of God. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism. You deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, Here's an excellent place. Sit here. But to the poor person you say, Stand over there, or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. God Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't, those, aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin, and by that same law you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep all of it. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as always, I ask that you hide me behind the cross so that they may see less of me and more of thee. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. So, a little while ago, Bishop Young Jin Cho, who is uh, leading the pilgrimage that Jonathan is on at this moment, um, issued a call for churches and pastors of the Virginia Annual Conference Um, to join our brothers and sisters in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, um, in in observing a day of confession, repentance, prayer, and commitment to end racism. So 
when Jonathan uh, asked me to preach, I thought, why not tackle that while you're gone, <laughs> right? Like, that sounds great. Um, actually, you are in the middle of starting a new sermon series, um, and uh, so he said, you can either start the sermon series for me, um, or uh, you can do what you want. And for some reason, I chose to tackle this subject. Um, so... In the wake of the Emmanuel Nine, the murders of the Emmanuel Nine, you may remember that the senior pastor and eight members of the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, the Council of Bishops of the AME Church has asked every church, temple, synagogue, or mosque to commit a Sunday to focus on race. And more importantly, be reminded that out of one blood, God created all of us together in unity. The Emmanuel Nine and so many others who have died or been discriminated against and suffered because of race cannot have their lives taken, they said, simply to be a footnote in history. Many have spoken about how extraordinary the Emmanuel Nine and their families have been uh, who in their loss and pain have proclaimed forgiveness. They continued, but they represent the majority of African Methodists and in fact black Christians. We seek to live God's word, they said. We will go forward from here with forgiving, but also leading and demanding that the nation act on race. Several years ago, Aaron and I went uh, to Las Vegas for our fifth wedding anniversary, and it was also my brother's 40th birthday. And let me tell you, it was a long weekend um, full of, but I forgot, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? <laughs> no, it, it was a great weekend. It was. It was full of um, amazing food. I think I gained 15 pounds before I came back. It was full of amazing sights. Um, and one of the things uh, that Aaron and I treated ourselves to uh, during this week um, was Cirque du Soleil's show O at the Bellagio. And we didn't just treat ourselves to it. We treated ourselves to some of the best seats in the house. Now, how many of you have ever been to a show, a Cirque show? Anybody? Just a few, just a few. Let me give you a, a metaphor of what it's like to go to a Cirque show. Imagine yourself thirsty, and you get a fire hose to drink some water. And then the person on the other end doesn't just give you a trickle, they turn it on full blast, right? There is no way at a Cirque show that you can take everything in. There is just no way. So what you end up doing at a Cirque show is you start focusing on the main characters. And your attention, everything you have is given to these main characters in the center of the stage. While everyone else... All of these wonderful performers and dancers and just amazing, amazing artists are cast into your periphery, into the shadows, and out of the spotlight. Even though it's challenging to watch everyone, to pay attention to it all, to make sure that each character gets just a little bit of your focus and a little bit of your attention, you are just unable to. It's too much, which is not only sad because every single character has something, is doing something amazing and it has something to give, but you also do a disservice to the entire show. 
You see, it takes the whole. It takes every single character in this performance for you to get the entire story. James, here in his first couple chapters of this letter, is admonishing Christians to be better in their faith. And is in a sense telling his readers, and and it speaks even to us today, to stop putting only the main characters in the spotlight. And to pay attention to those who we may have put into the shadows, into our periphery, and more importantly, at arm's length. His passionate letter calls for people to keep everyone, every single person, every person in this narrative and drama of life in our focus. Because he says that, that is what loving your neighbor is all about. The story of who is poor here in James focuses on money, but his words are far, far more than that. It's about those we put into the shadows. It's about those who are out of the spotlight and those that we keep at arm's length. I grew up in southwest Virginia, um, just however you want to say it, down the mountain or up the road um, in Salem, Virginia. Um, and in my life growing up, uh, I was uh, a self-proclaimed country boy um, that lived in somewhat of a bubble. I, not somewhat. It lived in a bubble. When I came to college at Virginia Tech, um, all I really did was maintain that bubble, um, only going 30 minutes away uh, to a new place that I'd been to my entire life. So that bubble was nice, safe, and secure. I never really experienced that much diversity. Um, And quite frankly, I was blinded um, to any differences that were around me. And I I say I'm blinded both in a good way um, and in a bad way. And I was blinded to the many ways um, of my privilege. So I, I maintained this, this wonderful bubble for, for many years of my life, and then I decided to, to go down to Durham, North Carolina, to, to Duke University. And before we go any further, let me just say I am upset about yesterday's loss. <laughs> I, I am a hokey before I am a Blue Devil. In fact, I've kind of just said no to the Blue Devil altogether. Um, yeah, I, you know. I, even when I was at Duke, I wore orange and maroon in the middle of the Cameron Crazies. So, um, so yesterday was, was not a good day. Um, actually, this whole season. But um, anyway, I, I, I diverge. Um, so, but it wasn't until I went to Durham, North Carolina, to Duke for seminary, that my bubble burst. It didn't just burst, it pretty much exploded. I remember it vividly. I was sitting in the Bryan Center, which is their student center at Duke, um, and I was there for RA training. There was a young African-American woman that was sitting uh, right in front of me for training. And I remember thinking and actually even saying to the person beside me, 
Oh my gosh, this girl is loud. She's obnoxious. And I said, she's one of those black people. What my friend said to me next is kind of funny. She said, Brett, you know she's in the divinity school too. (laughs) I was like, oh crap. This is going to be a long three years. What's even more funny and ironic about this story is that two weeks later, this young African-American woman became my best friend. Halima Nash changed my life. She was the perfect pin to pop the bubble. And we are friends to this day. Halima and I Uh, Let me just tell you, we are, were, and still are in many ways complete opposites. Me, uh, a white, middle-class male. She, a African-American, lower-class female. I'm from southwest Virginia, and she's from Compton, California. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, (laughs) yes, yes. I remember um, traveling, uh, I don't know, whatever the interstate is between Duke and App State. Um, and we're going up the mountain, and uh, all of a sudden, Halima exclaims, Oh my gosh! And I was like, What in the world is the matter? And she was like, There is a brown cow, Brett, a brown cow. And I was like, Yeah, Halima, it's a, a brown cow. And she said, No, no, you don't get it. I only thought cows were black and white. <laughs> And that day, we, she saw her first deer. She saw her first goat. <laughs> Things that in my life, I was like, I mean, this is an everyday occurrence. And I laughed and, and continued to laugh every time one of these new uh, situations arose for Halima. And she said, Brett, you laugh, but you wait till I take you to Compton. <laughs> She's like, you're going to be going down the street going, oh, my gosh, there's a gun. (laughs) There's a gang member. Story after story after story would reveal that Halima and I had nothing in common. We were complete opposites, but we learned so much from each other. Most importantly, my relationship with Halima confronted my own racism that I didn't even know I had. And it confronted my privilege that I didn't know I even had. I share this story with you this morning to illustrate that I never knew that in my thoughts and about other people in these preconceived notions that I had in my lack of understanding. I was placing people in the shadows, in the periphery of my vision, and out of the spotlight. I was doing exactly what James is talking about in his letter. 
And you know what? It took experiencing racism and prejudice and even profiling through the lens of one of my closest friends that I was able to confront these injustices and as a child of God to speak to them by reorienting my life to a way of following Jesus. To model one of Christ. Because faith in following Jesus makes no difference in our relationship or it, no, excuse me, because faith in following Jesus makes a difference in the way that we are in relationship with our sisters and brothers in Christ, no matter race, no matter gender, no matter status or identity or anything else. Loving our neighbors is focusing not only on the main characters in our story of life that stand in the spotlight, but it's to shine the light into the shadows to those that we keep at arm's length. I heard a story about a young man and a church that illustrates James's message to a T. His name was Michael. He was a young African-American young man attending a college where uh, he began considering uh, a life in the Christian faith. Across the street from campus uh, was a very well-dressed, very traditional, very white church. He decided to go and visit this church on one Sunday morning, and he, he wore what he normally wore each day, some baggy shorts, uh, T-shirts, and some sandals, and he walks eagerly into the church awaiting an opportunity to learn more about it, what it means to follow this man named Jesus. The service had already started when Michael came in, and he starts down the aisle looking for a seat, and the church was completely packed, so he couldn't find a seat. And by now, you can imagine, people are starting to get a little uncomfortable as he makes his way to the very front of the church, where there's normally some pews open, but this day there wasn't. But no one says a thing. Michael gets closer and closer to the pulpit, and when he realizes that there's just not any seats, he just decides to squat right down and sit in the middle of the aisle. By now, the people are really, really uptight, and tension is in the air is thick. And about this time, the minister realizes that from the way back of the church, a long-time member of the congregation makes his way towards the young man. Now, this man is in his 80s. He has silver-gray hair. He has a three-piece suit, a uh, very godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly, a prominent lawyer in their town. He walks with a cane, and as he's walking towards this boy, everyone is thinking to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age to understand this college kid sitting on the floor? Who does this boy think he is? Well, Dr. Sims will take care of it, everyone, including the pastor, thanks. And it takes a long time for Dr. Sims to reach the boy, and the church is utterly silent except for the sound of his cane. You can't really even hear anyone breathing. All eyes are focused on him. The minister couldn't even finish preaching his sermon until this man does what he has to do. And as he reaches the boy, he drops his cane on the floor, and with great difficulty, he lowers himself to sit beside this young man. 
so he wouldn't have to worship alone. Everyone chokes up with emotion, and when the minister gains control, he says, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. What you just saw, you'll never forget. Friends, when you look at our world, it feels like things are out of kilter. From the workplace to the schoolhouse to the courtroom to the home, it feels like things aren't just quite the way they're supposed to be. It doesn't certainly feel like we're thriving. Perhaps we are in this situation in spite of what we're doing. Perhaps it's precisely because of what we're doing. If you take a close look at our way of life, it's hard not to conclude that at times we are sowing injustice. But we, as followers of Jesus, have the opportunity to begin shining the spotlight on those who need it most. We have the opportunity to bring the people that are in our periphery right into the forefront of our focus. We can bring people out of the shadows. We can do as James says, but more importantly as Jesus says. We can begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. By doing so, we will find that each character in this great drama of life, no matter race, no matter status, no matter anything else, each individual character brings beauty to the whole. For without the whole, we don't get the true story. If we leave some characters out, we're not going to understand the beauty of creation as a whole. Friends, from Genesis to Revelation, God's call is one of justice. A justice defined by compassion and love and mercy towards others. Especially, especially the least and the lost and the left out. So where is your spotlight? Where is your focus? I believe that if it's with following Jesus, our eyes are going to be, most importantly, where they need to be. And that's loving our neighbors as ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Amen.